Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to welcome you, and I want to thank you for joining us as we learn to honor and glorify God. In 2003, a runaway bestseller was written, The Da Vinci Code. For the next years, it had great influence. People have lost faith. People have questioned. What's all the hullabaloo about? Is there really that much to The Da Vinci Code? The lesson that you're about to hear is the first in a two-part series that I presented just after the movie was released, taking a look at the truth about Dan Brown's evidence. This is the first in a two-part series, so when you're done listening to this one, make sure to look up part two, Seeking the Truth Behind the Fiction. Was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? They had a daughter named Sarah who grew up in what is modern-day France. Does he still have descendants that walk among us and live here in our world? Could one of them be here in this auditorium? These are questions that have been bandied about since the advent of Dan Brown's runaway bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. Questions that I think are actually kind of a smokescreen for some of the deeper issues that are brought up within the book. There are other questions that are asked. Has modern-day Christianity been shaped by Constantine, who in 325 A.D. purged the Bible of documents and then embellished and edited the ones that were there to provide for what we now have in Christ's church? Was Jesus merely a mortal man, His followers recognizing Him as a great man, as an influential man, and yet nothing more than a man, and He was only deified by a close vote at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D.? Was Mary Magdalene the rock upon which Jesus' church was supposed to have been built? We could deal with claims and questions and all kinds of things for lesson after lesson, after lesson. But what I hope we can do today is just take two brief lessons and get to the heart of the matter and help us to understand the truth about Christ, about His church, and about the Da Vinci Code. In this morning's lesson, we just want to take a look at the truth about Dan Brown's evidence. He makes all kinds of claims throughout his book, and we could look at each and every one of them, and we'd be here from now until doomsday, demonstrating the history, the Bible, what everyone understands, demonstrates that what he says is untrue. But instead, what I'd like for us to do for just a few moments this morning is take a look at the evidence that Dan Brown himself has presented in favor of his claim. And if we can demonstrate that the evidence that he presents is faulty, then that takes the foundation out from under all of those claims that are mentioned. And then tonight, we're going to be taking a look at the truth behind the fiction. We're going to get down to the heart of the matter and what are the real issues that have brought this book about. And it's not, it's not that Jesus was just a man. It's not that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There are other things that brought this book to play. And we're going to be talking about that tonight as we seek the truth behind Dan Brown's fiction. Before we take a look at this book, would you please bow with me in prayer? Almighty and glorious Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We praise your name. We lift you up because we understand that you are indeed awesome. You are powerful. You are majestic and magnificent beyond our wildest and possible imagination. 
Father, we love You because You sent Your Son to die for us. God in the flesh, who lived among us, who suffered among us, who died for us, and who was resurrected. And we are so thankful for that truth. And Father, we praise Your name because You gave us Your Word. And we recognize, Father, that You are in fact behind the Bible, that You brought it about, that You preserved it for us, and that we can study it and understand what we should do in order to serve and glorify and honor You. And most importantly to us, we can understand how we might be forgiven and saved by the blood of Your Son. Father, we ask that You would be with us today. As we face the errors that are in this world, we recognize that Your church, Your Word, Your Son has been attacked for two millennia. We are not surprised that it is attacked again today. We pray that You would give us the strength to stand up, that You would give us the strength to spread Your Gospel, give us the knowledge and the understanding that we need, and help us, Father, to honor and glorify You in all that we do. Forgive us where we have fallen short. Forgive us where we have not studied and learned. Forgive us where we have not applied and taught. And Father, we pray that You would strengthen us to take Your straight and narrow path. Through Your Son who died for us, we pray. Amen. Somebody might ask, why would we deal with this in a sermon? After all, it's just a book of fiction. It's just a novel. Do I want Dan Brown's book to be removed from the bookstores, banned from the libraries? No. Do I want his movie boycotted and banned and pulled off? No. Do I want to sound the alarm and raise the battle cry that the very foundations of Christianity are about to crumble? Absolutely not. The reality is I am really not the least bit concerned about the nature or the foundation of Christianity. In fact, I think Dan Brown himself, in a speech to the New Hampshire Writers Project, stated it best as he quoted a British priest who said the following, Christian theology has survived the writings of Galileo and the writings of Darwin. Surely it will survive the writings of some novelist from New Hampshire. Amen? Absolutely. So I'm not the least bit worried about the foundation of Christianity. I'm not worried that Christianity is about to be wiped off the face of the earth because somebody has written a novel. But why deal with it then? Certainly, this book is a work of fiction. Dan Brown has written a story. And in this story, he claims to have provided the other side of the greatest story ever told. In fact, one of his characters says this, the Sangreal documents, which we'll talk about in a moment, simply tell the other side of the Christ story. In the end, which side you believe becomes a matter of faith and personal exploration. But at least the information has survived. He has provided what he calls the other side of the story. Is it fiction? Certainly. The question, however, is not whether it is fiction. The question is whether it is influencing people. 60.5 million copies of this book are in print. At the end of last weekend, the movie had made over $462 million worldwide. In 2005, Time Magazine listed Dan Brown, a New Hampshire novelist, 
who has only written four books. Three of them were mediocre flops until this one came out. And they list him as one of their 100 most influential people in the world. The question is not, is it fiction? The question is, are people being influenced by it? Undoubtedly, they are. Dan Brown, on his website, has said, as he commented regarding the, the, all the books and the sermons that are being preached, he said, that's wonderful. I love the debate. What we need is debate. We need, to be, we need people getting all these things out in the open, discussing them and, and, and talking about them. But the very interesting thing that's happened is that because he's written a novel and then said he welcomes debate, anytime we start talking about it, somebody cries out, why can't you leave him alone? It's just a book. It's just a novel. You guys are just so mean. And we Christians get put in a tough spot. If we don't address it, the error is allowed to influence unhindered. But if we do address it, then we get accused of being right-wing Christian wackos who want to suppress the truth. The reality is I don't want to suppress anything. I want us to seek the truth. Did you see the trailer for the movie? In one of the trailers, the very last screenshot is the words, Seek the Truth. It reminded me of what used to be one of my favorite shows, The X-Files. The last scene in the opening credits was, The truth is out there. And it is. And we can seek it. And I am excited for the opportunity that this has provided for us to seek the truth. And that's exactly what we're going to do. For those who have not read the book or seen the movie, I do want to provide just this, uh, this tidbit of background, just so you can kind of know the story and know where we're going. The way this all begins is that the curator of the Louvre Museum, Jacques Saunier, is murdered. He's shot in the stomach. He's left to bleed to death with no hope of finding help or being able to get out. And he's afraid that the secret that he has been entrusted to hold is going to be lost. So beside his body as he lays dying, he leaves a riddle. A riddle that's supposed to call the attention of his estranged granddaughter, Sophie Naveau, and also the attention of the Harvard's professor of symbology, Robert Langdon. Sadly, the riddle that he leaves behind causes the French police to think that Robert Langdon is the killer. And so the rest of the book is all about this guy trying to follow the clues left behind and stay away from the French police, not to mention find out who it was that actually killed Jacques Saunier. As they follow the riddle that's left behind the body, it takes them to the Mona Lisa. Perhaps you saw in the trailer this picture. And on the plexiglass in front of the Mona Lisa is this phrase, so dark the con of man. I'm just putting this up to you so you can see the kind of stuff that's going on in this book. And they see this, so dark the con of man. And of course we hear about, oh no, it's men in the church that are causing all the problems. But more than that, this is what's called an anagram. And we find these throughout the book. This is a big deal in the book. Anagram. An anagram... It's like that word scramble in the paper that you work on on Sunday mornings where you have all the letters and you're trying to figure out what the real word is and you, you shift them around. Well, an anagram is where when you shift them around, it makes another word and they find out that so dark the con of man is a perfect anagram for the phrase Madonna of the Rocks, which is another painting by Leonardo da Vinci. They run over to that painting. They find a key. It's a key to a Swiss, uh, Swiss bank safe deposit box. They run to the bank and they find more clues and on it goes. Until they finally get to the end and they figure out who did the killing and what all's going on and they find the Holy Grail. Kind of. What's going on here is that Jacques Saunier was one of the four top members of an organization that was supposedly founded in the year 1099 in France called the Priory 
of Zion. It's an organization that has held secrets. The greatest cover-up ever known to man. They've held it secret because the Catholic Church historically would stop at nothing to destroy the secret. That secret is that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. That Mary Magdalene was going to give birth to Jesus' daughter. And they claim that Mary Magdalene, who contained the blood of Jesus Christ in her womb, was in fact the Holy Grail. Indiana Jones got it wrong. Mary Magdalene, the Holy Grail. The chalice that contained the blood of Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, she was also supposed to be the rock upon which Jesus was building His church. But of course, He died and wasn't able to continue that. And men came along and ruined the whole thing. Mary had to go into hiding. And people have hidden the descendants of Jesus along with documents that, have, that would prove all of this to be true. Those documents are called the Sangreal documents. San, like sanctified or saint holy, and Greal, Grail, Holy Grail. The Sangreal documents, along with the bones of Mary Magdalene. The search for the Holy Grail, we're told, is not about finding the cup which Jesus used at the Last Supper, but rather is about finding the bones of Mary Magdalene along with the documents that prove who she is, the importance she had in Christ's church, and the fact that Jesus was just a man who left her behind to establish His church. Within the book, startling claims are made, which have caused people to be upset. And the claims themselves wouldn't cause all the backlash from Christians. It's the fact that people have read the claims and started buying into them, and that's why we continue to debunk Dan Brown's code. Some of the statements. My dear, until that moment in history, that moment in history is the year 325 A.D., nearly three centuries after Jesus died at the Council of Nicaea. Until that moment in history, Sir Lee Teabing in the book says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. He goes on in talking about that council and says, Christ, as Messiah, was critical to the functioning of the church and state. Many scholars claim that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, and using it to expand their own power. I just have to, on a side note, say, I was reading something the other day where Dan Brown said, I don't know why everybody's so upset. Just the claim that Jesus got married and had a child doesn't question his divinity. Maybe not. But this right here does. You see that? Another quote, page 234. Because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death. By the way, 325 is only three centuries after Jesus' death. I would just say this. If he can't even count that 300 years is only three centuries, I don't know why we believe anything else he says. But moving on. Because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death, thousands of documents already existed chronicling his life as a mortal man. To rewrite the history books, Constantine knew he would need a bold stroke. From this spring, the most profound moment in Christian history, Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. And this all brings us to the final statement we want to note here, according to Sir Lee Teeving, Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is 
false. We can't trust the Bible because Constantine edited it. We can't go back to that as our source. We need to go back to other documents. We need to find the sangreal stash that's going to give us the real story of Jesus Christ. And from that we'll find out that Mary was the head of Jesus' church, that Jesus was just a man, and that what we really need to be following is not Jehovah God, but the sacred feminine. But what evidence does he present? Interestingly enough, I mean, this is, you know, this is not the biggest book I've ever seen, but this is a pretty thick book. You'd think that there'd be quite a bit of evidence portrayed in here, especially for such shocking and startling claims. But in reality, within this book, and if you've read it you, and think about it, you'll find it to be true. If you haven't read it, go ahead and read it. And find out that within this book, there are only three pieces of evidence offered. Gnostic Gospels, the painting The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, and this, and this document stash called the Sangreal Documents. And I want us to take a look at all three of these. This is, this is going to be a sermon like no other because since these guys are saying we can't trust the Bible, I just want us to take a look at these things. We do have some Bible that we're going to be reading today, but I understand that this is not the normal sermon. But this is an error that we have to deal with. And I think the best way this morning is just to take what is presented here and just ask, does it stand up to logic, common sense, and truth? There's no doubt it's different from the Bible, and I could show you a thousand places where it's different from the Bible. And I do believe the Bible is truth, and therefore this is wrong. But I want us to take a look at the evidence that he's presented and just question this and see, does it really stand up to the test? The very first piece of evidence is the Gnostic Gospels. Interestingly, you would think that the Gnostic Gospels are supposed to tell us this amazingly different story that he would have given us a whole bunch of quotes proving it, but in fact there are only two that are used. And when Dan Brown and the characters within his book talk about the supposed marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, he says that there are numerous quotes in the Gnostic Gospels, but he only gives one. That quote is found in what's called the Gospel of Philip. And here's what it said. And this is as quoted in Da Vinci's book on page 246. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? Sophie Navo says, well, you know, that's a startling statement, but it doesn't prove that he was married. And Lee Teabing responds, ah, as any Aramaic scholar will tell you, the word companion in those days literally meant spouse. Actually, brethren, as any Aramaic scholar will tell you, this document is not written in Aramaic. This document, the only copy that we have of it is written in Coptic. And the evidence suggests that the original was written in Greek. And the word that is used here, koinonos, is borrowed from the Greek and does not mean spouse. In fact, it is used in our New Testament in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, it's used. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, it talks about James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, they were partners. Were they married to Peter? No, they were fishing partners. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23 also uses this word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23, Paul said, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker. That word partner there. Is he saying Titus was his husband? Absolutely not. Titus was his partner. He was a fellow worker. It meant companion. It meant associate. It meant friend. 
That's all it ever meant. It's not written in Aramaic. I don't know about the Aramaic word for companion. All I know is this word's not in Aramaic, and it meant friend or partner. It didn't mean anything else. Very interestingly, also point out, and this is the one place where you actually have to go to some scholars and rely on them, because I don't speak Coptic. I don't read Coptic. I don't really know. I've never seen the actual original manuscript of this Gospel of Philip. But when the Codex was found, it was old, and it was already worn in a lot of places. There are holes in it. And so there are gaps in the text. This passage is one of the ones where there are gaps. According to Bart Ehrman in his book, The Truth and Fiction About the Da Vinci Code, he shows us where the gaps are. Now let me set this up for you by pointing out Bart Ehrman is no friend to Christianity. So this is not just some right-wing evangelical who's trying to make a case for himself. This is somebody that really, I think probably, he'd be happy to find something that said Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. But in his search for truth, he's honest with us and he tells us, here's actually what we have in the original text there. The companion, then there's a gap. Mary Magdalene, gap. More than gap. The disciples, gap. Kiss her gap on her gap. That's what we actually have in the manuscript. Everything else up here, up to that point, is supplied by these guys because that's what they want it to say. doesn't really tell us anything about the actual relationship Mary had versus the other disciples, and it doesn't tell us where Jesus kissed her. Perhaps it was just a holy kiss on her cheek, as was a customary greeting during those days. Finally, one more comment about the Gospel of Philip. Marriage is talked about in the Gospel of Philip, and there's this very interesting quote there. And by the way, you can go to the web, you can search Gnostic Gospels or Nag Hammadi Library, and you can find all of these with English translations, and you can read them for yourselves, and you'll find this quote just like I did. It says, Great is the mystery of marriage, for without it the world would not exist. Now the existence of the world, and that's a gap in the manuscript, and the existence of something, marriage, think of the relationship where it possesses gap power. But here's certainly something that sets marriage up. My question is, if the Gospel of Philip was intending to tell us that Jesus was married and there's all this evidence and marriage is this amazing thing, why wouldn't Philip talk about, and look, even our Savior was married? doesn't say that. What a perfect place for him to talk about the marriage of Jesus if, in fact, he really was. Because the reality is, the Gospel of Philip does not teach us that Jesus was married, nor does any other Gnostic Gospel. It's just not there. The second quote from the Gnostic Gospels comes from what's called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the Gospel of Mary, quoted on page 247 in the Da Vinci Code. And here it says, And Peter said, Did the Savior really speak with a woman without our knowledge? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? And Levi answered, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like an adversary. If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Sir Lee Keating commenting on this tells us this woman he's talking about is Mary Magdalene, and he tells us this. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus suspects he will soon be captured and crucified. So he gives Mary Magdalene instructions on how to carry on his church after he is gone. According to these unaltered Gospels, it was not Peter to whom Christ gave directions with which to establish the Christian church. It was Mary Magdalene. Let me tell you some things. And by the way, you can find this out on your own. You don't have to be a scholar. I'm not a scholar. I'm just like you. I just study my Bible. All you've got to do is get on the web, search for the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, you can find the text, and you'll discover that half of it's missing. And so the reality is we really don't know what this book is, is about. But what we can find, even just reading it ourselves, the English translation of it that you can find on the web, at this point in the Gospels, Jesus suspects he will soon be captured and crucified. That's not true. 
Read the Gospel himself. Jesus has already departed the disciples. He's encouraged them to go out teaching. This whole thing occurs after Jesus has ascended or has departed and is gone. So that's a lie. That's just not true. I mean, it's just made up. Because it doesn't even fit what's in that supposed Gospel account of Mary Magdalene. He gives Mary Magdalene instructions on how to carry out his church after he's gone. That's not true either. Actually, what happens is after Jesus has given instructions to the apostle and encouraged them to go out and teach, they're a little bit scared. Mary steps up to encourage them and say, go on out. And Peter turns to her and says, you know, we know Jesus spent a lot of time with you. What things did he tell you? And she says, well, I had a vision. And she tells this vision. In this vision, the fragment of it that we have, there's nothing about how to carry on the church. There's a discussion about the difference between soul and spirit. And then there's something talking about called the seven powers of wrath. It's all very mystical and ethereal because it's all Gnostic. But there's nothing about how to carry on the church. And there's certainly nothing about making her the head of the church. In fact, when it's all said and done, it's the apostles that go out and teach and not Mary Magdalene. They go out as she encouraged, and they go out as Jesus had told them to do. Interestingly, when she's done with her speech, Andrew is the first one to respond. He says, say what you wish to say about what she has said. I, at least, do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. I agree with Andrew. You read what she says, they're strange ideas. The reason why this is here is because that's what Christians said about Gnosticism. And so they write a book that says, oh yeah, people are going to say it's strange ideas, but this is really about Jesus. Then Peter makes his comment and Levi provides his retort. But the reality is, this, none of this, none of this is true. You don't have to believe me, you can go get your own copy of it and read it. It's just not true. I would like to also make this comment regarding this issue of loved her more than us. Surely you can see from the context of this statement that it's not about a romantic love. Loved her more than us is going back to this issue of Peter saying, did he prefer her to us? And Levi saying, yeah, look, that's why he loved her. That's why he preferred her. That's why he gave her a message that he didn't give us. Because he knew she was worthy. It's a very important part about Gnosticism the idea of being worthy and having special knowledge that makes you worthy. So the love here is not a romantic love, but it's simply a reference to Jesus gave her something he didn't give the others. But in addition to that, let me also point out that if this is romantic love, and Levi is talking to Peter, and Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, why didn't he just say, look, Peter, come on, this is Jesus' wife. We ought to expect her to know things that we don't know. Surely, Jesus would tell his own wife things that he wouldn't say to us. But that's not in there. Why? Because Gnostic Gospels don't say Jesus was married. The Gnostic Gospels do not say Mary Magdalene was the head of the church. None of this is actually found in the Gnostic Gospels. So there's evidence number one. Does it support the Da Vinci Code theory? I'll leave it to you. Do these two quotes tell us all this stuff? Does it support all the stuff that's said? I mean, this is not counting the lies that are made up about Mary Magdalene supposedly being of the tribe of Benjamin and of the lineage of kings, which we can't possibly know. Let's just, just take a look at the evidence. And you've seen it for yourself. This is it. This is all the evidence provided by the Gnostic Gospels in this book. Does it hold up any of the claims? Absolutely not. The second piece of evidence, the picture by Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper. And I believe that this is actually a a photograph of the actual Last Supper picture on the wall After it's been restored to some degree, they they cut back some of the restorative paintings because 20 years after this thing was painted, it was already crumbling and falling apart. And so people for years have come back and painted over it. And they've tried to clean it up and restore it as best they can. But the reality is we, we just don't really know exactly what Leonardo da Vinci had there. 
But here is evidence number two, claims made about the, uh, the painting, The Last Supper. The very first piece of evidence, and I didn't put all these quotes up here, I'm just going to read these to you. The first piece of evidence is that on this picture there are 13 cups instead of one. Lee Teabing, British historian within the book, says, A bit strange, don't you think, considering that both the Bible and our standard grail legend celebrate this moment as the definitive arrival of the Holy Grail. Oddly, da Vinci appears to have forgotten to paint the cup of Christ. I will point out to you, actually, it's hard for you to see probably, but right there Jesus is about to grab his cup. It's right there. Okay, now, yeah, there's other cups all along here because they were all drinking. But did you notice this, that the Bible celebrates this moment as the definitive moment in which the Holy Grail comes about? That was his statement, not mine. How many of you have read the accounts of the Lord's Supper in the Bible? Most of you? Anybody read anything about the definitive arrival of the Holy Grail in there? Anything in the Bible that says anything about how special the cup Jesus drank from was? No, there's nothing. There may be some grail legend, which, by the way, cannot be traced further back than the 1200s. There may be some grail legend. Indiana Jones' father may have been all eat up with finding the grail from these legends dating back to the year 1200 and something. There's nothing in the Bible about it. And so my suggestion is, no, it's not the least bit odd that Leonardo da Vinci doesn't have a special cup on the table. Perhaps he just read his Bible and found out that all 13 men were drinking the fruit of the vine. Perhaps he just put in there what the Bible says without being worried about legends that had started only 200 years before he lived. Perhaps. I don't know. The second piece of evidence from this book, from, from this painting, excuse me. The character to Jesus Christ, who most believe to be John. This one right here. Okay? This one's supposed to be John. This one's Judas. It's hard for you to tell. He's got a little money bag right there. He's knocked over a shaker of salt. And this one's Peter. This painting is supposed to capture the moment after Jesus said, one of you will betray me. This is the moment where Peter is asking John, ask him who? Uh, Sophie examined the figure to Jesus' immediate right, focusing in. As she studied the person's face and body, a wave of astonishment rose within her. The individual had flowing red hair, delicate folded hands, and the hint of a bosom. It was, without a doubt, female. That's a woman! Sophie exclaimed. How do we respond to that? Well, poor John in this painting does look a little bit feminine, doesn't he? But what do we get from that? What is that? Does that suddenly mean, oh, it's Mary Magdalene? Even if Leonardo did paint a woman here, how do we know which woman? Does it suddenly mean, oh, the whole history of Christianity is wrong and Leonardo's trying to give us that message? Is it possible? Have you ever met some men that had feminine features? Is it possible that Leonardo just used one of them as his... Model for John? You know, interestingly, in Renaissance art, there were a lot of men that were painted with feminine features. In fact, one of the issues of that day was that young men, and John was traditionally considered to be the youngest of disciples, were often painted with feminine features. It was kind of the idea that they were not quite manly enough to go out on their own. In addition to that, Leonardo just painted some men with feminine features. I mean, look at this one over here. Doesn't that look kind of feminine? 
Is that Salome? Maybe that's Joanna. Or what about this one over here? That one looks kind of feminine to me too, don't you think? Maybe it's just the fact that Leonardo just painted some men with feminine features just because Leonardo liked to do that. Again, even if it is some type of woman, how do we know which woman? And then finally, you know, there's something to be pointed out here. All of this is banking on the fact that there's supposed to be a cup here that's not here, so the grail must be something else. But if that's Mary Magdalene and it's not John, then where's John? John 13:23 says the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned back upon his breast. Where's that disciple? Leonardo knew that guy was supposed to be there. If the cup being missing means these amazing things, what about the apostle being missing? Where is he? All right, I'm going to try to speed up here. Sorry. The next thing, there is what is called the chalice, the oldest symbol we're told for, for, uh, for the feminine. We're told that there's a thing called the blade that looks like this. That's the oldest ancient symbol for manhood. And then the chalice. It looks kind of like a V. It's supposed to be like this. And it's in the painting. In fact, here's what they say. The chalice resembles a cup or vessel, and more important, it resembles the shape of a woman's womb. The symbol communicates femininity, womanhood, and fertility. The chalice is supposedly found in this painting in the void that's created right here between Jesus and John. You see that? There it is. There's a V right there. That's it. Here, I'll, I'll highlight it for you. There it is. You see? Well, there we go. Bible must be false. Can't be true. Holy Grail must have been a woman, and it must be Mary Magdalene, all because when, when John leaned over to listen to Peter before he leaned back on Jesus' breast, it created a V in this picture. Did it ever occur that there's a V there just because John was leaning away and Jesus was going the other way? There's this. Why does this mean anything? You know, what, what if Leonardo had actually painted what was described in John chapter 13 and verse 23? John leaning back on Jesus' breast. You know, this is one of those places where no matter what Leonardo would have done, anybody who wanted to find something could. Because if John had been leaning back on Jesus' breast, what we would have read in the book was, see, there it was. Leonardo da Vinci was painting Jesus' lover, Mary Magdalene, leaning on his breast. No matter what he said. No matter what he did. If we want to find it, we're going to find it. The fourth and final piece of evidence from Leonardo da Vinci's painting. Finally, Teabing said, if you view Jesus and Magdalene as compositional elements rather than as people, now remember, John is supposed to be Magdalene, okay? If you view Jesus and, and John or Magdalene, as, as Teabing is saying, as compositional elements rather than people, you will see another obvious shape leap out at you. He paused. A letter of the alphabet, not counting the V. Now, okay, anybody not read the book? Have you read the book, Jimmy? Okay, do you see a letter of the alphabet right there? Of course, you're off to the side. You're off to the side. Don, have you read the book? Okay, you haven't read the book. Do you see a letter right there with Jesus and, and John? You can't see it? <sighs> well, let's see here. Sophie saw it at once. I don't know what's wrong with you, Don. Sophie saw it at once. To say the letter leapt out at her was an understatement. The letter was suddenly all Sophie could see. Glaring in the center of the painting was the unquestionable outline of an enormous, flawlessly formed letter M. 
A bit too perfect for coincidence, wouldn't you say? Teabing asked. Sophie was amazed. Why is it there? Teabing shrugged. Conspiracy theorists will tell you it stands for matrimonio. Or Mary Magdalene. To be honest, nobody is certain. The only certainty is the hidden M is no mistake. Do you see it, Kurt? Okay, let me see if I can help you guys out here. You know, one of the interesting things is this part's not in the movie. And I think the reason is it's one thing to say it in the book. It's another thing to actually show it on the painting because it's just not there. But let me see if I can help you. All right, if you use Jesus' left arm, see? Okay, are you starting to see it? And now, actually, I think what we have to do, I'm not really sure, maybe it's supposed to come down Peter's back, but that looks kind of canny wampus. I think what we're supposed to do is come down what should be John's arm that's going behind Judas right there, and see, suddenly there you have it. An M. No mistake. There it is. Well, there it is now that we've drawn it. What does that mean? Well, even Lee Teabing says, well, I really don't know what it means. We just know that it's there. It could mean marriage. It could mean Mary Magdalene. If it is there, my question is, couldn't it mean, I don't know, Messiah? How do we know what it means? But I'll tell you this. Here's the other interesting thing. If we work hard enough, we can find all kinds of things. Watch this. Are you ready for this? If you take this guy, and I don't know who which one this is supposed to be, but if you follow the curve of his shoulder and wrap around his body, watch what you can find. And, and you can't really see it here because it's kind of smudged out, but around this, this arm here, look at that. Now, now hold on. I'm, I'm absolutely serious here. Watch this. Now, there's Jesus' hand. You see that right there? And notice Jesus' hand is directly beneath this guy that's pointing up. I mean, that's an odd angle for him to be just doing that. And so I think what we can see here is that there's obviously a line there. And then right along the table edge. Lo! But you know, I think it's really odd. This same guy that's the circle, his hand, I mean, that's just kind of an odd odd angle there. I think there's a line there too. And then if you follow this guy's shoulder, right along there, there's one there. And then right here at the table, we've got one there. But now watch this. And you see that you've got this, this tapestry that's hanging down that goes right through this guy's ear, through that hand, through that hand, and right into this hand down here. Looky there. Leonardo put his own name in the painting. Okay, hold on here. Now this one's great. Now we know the chalice is there, right? But if you come down, if you come down John's cloak here and then up Judas' arm, you get a good dubbing. Now over here we've got Peter's shoulder, and, and boy, and you know his shoulder is really at an odd angle because that's his hand sticking out there with that knife, and he's doing something funky like that. And if you follow the curve of his shoulder and along this cloak and around the, this, you get kind of a, an interesting thing there, too. And way over here, you see this tapestry hanging down. It goes straight down this guy's nose, straight into his hand down here. And then, of course, we come across the table. There he has it again, low. But now, now watch this. See, now remember, we've got Jesus' hand over here pointing up to this one. And so I think we, we know there's a line there. And this guy is pointing to something, so I think we need to mark that. And, and see, watch this. And see, right up that guy's nose there, you see that? Straight from this plate here all the way up straight his nose. And then right here, down this tapestry behind this guy, it goes through his ear, through this hand, at the end of this hand, and down straight into this hand. We've already seen that line. I think that's just really interesting. Now, I think, let's see here. I think if we come across the top of his head... And we'll notice that clearly this hand and the line here in this guy's cloak, shirt, that says something. And you know, if we go right down this, the angle of this guy's shirt here and his head, look at that. 
And I don't know if you notice this tapestry that's going straight down back here. What? It's there. Can't you see it? Leonardo, encoding a secret message for us in the Last Supper, that instead of listening to Dan Brown, you need to listen to a 21st century preacher named Edwin. I don't know who that would be. We ought to find him. You get the point? If we want to find it there, we'll find it. And so here's my question. Does this evidence really tell us all this other stuff? Absolutely not. Of course not. And has it occurred to anybody that even if Leonardo was saying those things, that Leonardo painted this painting in 1495, nearly a millennium and a half after the Lord's Supper actually was instituted. Why on earth would we use his painting as evidence when we have so much more evidence closer to the fact that says it's all false. The final piece of evidence, the Sangreal documents, the documents that are hidden, the Holy Grail itself, with the bones of Mary Magdalene, we're told there's an enormous difference between hypothetically discussing an alternate history of Christ and presenting to the world thousands of ancient documents of scientific evidence that the New Testament is false testimony. The Sangreal documents are thousands of documents that definitively prove that everything we know from the New Testament is just wrong. Here's a very interesting admission by Sir Lee Teeving on page 268. He says to Sophie, Then, my dear, with the Sangreal documents gone, all evidence will be lost. Do you see the admission there? What he actually admits there is that those other pieces of evidence really don't count. He understands there's really only one piece of evidence. It's the Sangreal documents, and if that's gone, all evidence is lost. Guess what? Nobody's ever seen these. They're hidden. In the book, they're not even actually found. Perhaps. But at the end, if they are where Robert Langdon thinks they are, he leaves them there and nobody sees them. More people have seen the Loch Ness Monster than have seen these documents. What does that tell us? They contain all the evidence and nobody's seen it. So what's that tell us, folks? There ain't no evidence. It's just not there. It is just not there. Not to mention the organization that has supposedly been keeping this thing hidden for over a th- or for almost a thousand years. It is a hoax that began in 1956 by a career criminal in France trying to make claims of the French throne. It's been proven a host. He admitted that he made it all up. The organization doesn't exist. The documents don't exist. Nobody's seen them. There is no evidence. Brethren, I'd like for you to look in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. The Bible there says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. The King James Version says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. 
I would suggest that what Dan Brown has written is something that causes division and offense contrary to the doctrine we've learned. He should be marked and avoided. And I will also suggest to you that Leonardo da Vinci almost prophetically made the same claim and Dan Brown, unbeknownst to himself, brought the code into his own book. If you've seen the movie or read the book, do you remember So Dark the Con of Man, the anagram for Madonna of the Rock? Surely you were able to see that that's a clear anagram for So Mark the Con of Dan. And that's exactly what it is. It's a con. It's a hoax. It's false. And sadly, folks are being influenced by it. But as one of the characters in the book says, the blind see what they want to see. And that's exactly what's happened today. If I could, as we close, I'd like to point out one more thing from the book. The reality is this book is a self-imploding idea. If we accept the underlying principle that Jesus was not, a, was not God in the flesh, but He was just a man, then really it makes everything else about it pointless. After all, who cares about the great, 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 great grandkids of a guy who is just a philosopher? Nobody cares if the descendants of Aristotle, Plato, or Socrates are walking among us. Who cares if the descendants of a would-be claimant to the destroyed nation of Israel, who cares if their descendants are walking among us? After all, nobody cares about the descendants of Julius Caesar, Attila the Hun, Alexander the Great. If Jesus was just a man, and that's it, then nobody cares. But the reality is, people only care because of what the Bible says about him that He's the Son of God. You see the point? If Brown is right that Jesus was just a man, his kids wouldn't have been important enough to hide for 2,000 years. Nobody would care today, and nobody would have cared then. And so if Brown is right, his book is pointless. But on the other hand, if Brown is wrong, then Jesus is God. And we need to follow it. Here's what another book says about seeking the truth. In John 8 and verse 32, it says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And in John 17 and 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the truth. The Bible is God's word. Jesus is His Son. And He lived and He died so that we might have forgiveness. Seek that truth, and you will be set free. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you, helping you understand that, in reality, the evidence for the Da Vinci Code's claims just really isn't there. If you have any questions about the Da Vinci Code, if you have questions about the Franklin Church of Christ or about the Bible, please give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com Please don't forget, there's a second lesson in this series entitled, The Da Vinci Code, Seeking the Truth Behind the Fiction. Make sure to listen to that lesson as well. As we find out, if the evidence wasn't the reason this book was written, what was? 
Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on CD or on audio tape. If that's the case, please let me encourage you to go to that website I mentioned a few moments ago, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons in outline and audio format that you're free to download and use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.